Good morning, everyone. It is good to see you here. I talked to a number of people this week, and they said they weren't going to be here this uh, uh, weekend. And I was told Allison this morning that I wouldn't be surprised if it was just our family that was going to be here this morning. But glad that there's a few more of you that uh, showed up. And as I was thinking of what Daryl said, yes, Graham, you're here too. And I got my eyes on you in the back row. So when Graham was talking about, or sorry, when Daryl was talking about the fact that we are at the uh, end of the summer and school is starting and that there's a great change happening in, in our household, I was thinking how it really is a bittersweet time this time of year. The sweet part being is the kids go back to school, which, uh, which at the, you think the summer is going to be really long, and then as you get to September, you're counting the days. Uh, so the kids are going back to school, but in our household, two of our children are, are, are going further than just the local school. So Lauren's going to Wales in a couple of weeks, and Natalie starts in London uh, and taking her there on Tuesday. So people have said, boy, your house is going to be quiet. You've cut your kids in half. I have to remind them Graham and Jack are still at home. So that is, I think, most of the noise. So uh, anyways, it's hard to believe that we are in September, and I find it hard to believe that we have gone through a whole series once again uh, this summer, and I didn't really know what to expect when we started the series. You're never more like Jesus than when you dot, 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 and we filled in those dots uh, over the summer. Um, to be honest, I found the series on the internet. Uh, the, the title anyways, and, and some of the answers, and bounced it off the guys if that could be something that we could do. I thought it would work really well because it got us out of the Psalms, or your favorite verse to speak on. It gave us something that, uh, that could stand alone each week. But I don't know about you, but I found the messages really, really challenging. Uh, as I've listened and as I've had the opportunity to do a number of them. And I, I began the series by saying that being like Jesus is something that I think most of us would say we want to be like Jesus. Uh, it, it's a good pursuit. It, it's noble. Uh, we've, we hear about it a lot. We wear, some of us, bracelets that have a similar theme, WWJD. What would Jesus do? And yet I wonder how many, how many of us really have thought of the implications of being like Jesus. And yet, Scripture clearly teaches, uh, I believe, that the ultimate purpose for us as followers of Jesus is to be like Jesus, that God's will for His people is Christ-likeness. The will of God for His people is Christ-likeness likeness, that God wants us to be all that He's created us to be. He wants to build in us the character, the character of Jesus, the character that we read of in the Beatitudes in Matthew, or, or the fruits of the Spirit in, in Galatians, or, or the love chapter in 1 Corinthians. So very biblical, very, very good um, goal is to be like Jesus. But I asked way at the start of the summer, have you really thought of the implications? Because we say that we want to be like Jesus, but do we really? And I think it's easy to say that we want to be like Jesus because that's what we hear often at church. And it's easy to say that we want to be like Jesus if the picture of Jesus we have is the same picture that used to hang in our Sunday school room when we were a kid. 
And I shared this at the very beginning of the summer, that, that picture of Jesus, you know, where he's got the perfect hair, he's got the rugged good looks, he's wearing a robe, he's got a lamb in one hand, and he's got children gathered around him with a few sitting on his knee. I'm not sure that is really the full picture of what Scripture gives us of Jesus. Yes, he maybe he was ruggedly good looking and, and had wonderful hair and, and had a flowing robe and, and liked lambs and, and children. But the picture that we see in Scripture of Jesus was more than that. Jesus stood up for truth. He was passionate about the things of God, even if it meant flipping a table, even if it meant offending a crowd with the truth. Jesus wasn't inward focused. He didn't gather a group of followers and find a a quiet place secluded to just meet and fellowship and do things together. Jesus didn't come to condemn. He came to forgive. And look at the people that Jesus hung around with. The people that society wanted nothing to do with. The poor, the outcast, the lowly, the handicapped. And he didn't look down his nose at them. He didn't yell at them. He offered them forgiveness. Jesus was passionate about being, about being obedient to his Father's will. Jesus had a vision for the loss, a vision, a vision so huge that it went to the ends of the earth. And Jesus didn't just disappear in a crowd. He stood out. He was countercultural. In many ways, he was radical compared to those who didn't have any regard for God. And so when we consider that picture of Jesus, maybe we go, well, maybe that's not what I really want to be like. And maybe that's the conclusion that we have come to. And yet we stumble across a verse like 1 John 2, verse 6, that says if we confess that we are in Jesus, then we must live like him. If we profess to be a follower of Jesus, our desire must be to be like him. If we are truly a follower of Jesus, we are to live like him. We are to have and display characteristics that Jesus displayed, behaviors and attitudes. And that's not easy. In fact, I'm imagining if you've been here for a number of Sundays this summer, you've come to a conclusion. This is tough, tough work. Think of some of the topics. I'm going to put you on the spot because I didn't bother putting it on the screen behind me. What are some of the answers that we've given this summer? You're never more like Jesus than when you give. Sorry? Love. So we had love the unlovable. Forgive. Be patient. Be angry right the stuff. You know what your dad spoke on. Good work. <laughs> Anyone think of any other ones? Right at the very beginning, Brian spoke on serving others, being obedient to the will of the Father, patient, I think we heard, get angry about the right stuff, love the lost, Josh Lott spoke on that, share the gospel, you're never more like Jesus than when you're giving, forgiving, and love the unlovable. Any of those strike you as easy? 
What would you say is the toughest in that list? And hopefully you can remember some of the things. What's the toughest one that you think that we have spoken on this summer? You're never more like Jesus than when you love the unlovable, forgive. Daryl, I did not hear giving, so that's good as you're working on your campaign for this fall. This morning, I want to share the last topic. And I want to suggest to you that it is harder than all of the other ones. It is the most difficult, but it is also at the core, it is the foundation of our ability to do all the things that we looked at this summer. And that is that we are never more like Jesus than when we sacrifice self-interest. We're never more like Jesus than when we deny self. And all of those tough things this summer that we've looked at, if you're not willing to sacrifice self-interest or to deny self, it will always be hard to love the unlovable, to give, to be patient, to, to obey, and on and on and on as we go through that list. And Jesus gives us the greatest example of self-sacrifice. The praise team read it for us. Philippians chapter 2. That that Jesus, for Jesus, equality with God was in his grasp because Jesus in his very essence was God. But he didn't hold on to that truth and preserve himself and just look out for his own self-interest. And his own self-gain. Because if he had done that, he never would have left the glory and splendor of heaven. He never would have submitted to the, the, the Father's plan of salvation. He never would have come and died on a cross for sinners. But praise God, we, we hear in Philippians 2 that Jesus didn't find his equality with God, the glory and splendor of heaven, something that he had to hold on that would have kept him from coming to earth. But rather, it, it says that he made himself nothing. Literally, it means he emptied himself, not of his deity, but of his self-interest. And it says he humbled himself, taking the very form or very nature of a servant taking on human flesh and in obedience to his father died on a cross for sinners. We also see the example of Jesus, this this self-sacrificing king in the Gospels. And I want you to turn to Mark. Turn to Mark chapter 8 because that's the passage we're going to be focusing on this morning. But Mark goes to great lengths to repeat the words of Jesus to reveal to us, to make sure we understand that Jesus is the self-sacrificing Savior, the self-sacrificing King. In fact, three times in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus calls his closest followers to him, and he tells them very specifically that he's going to die and that he's going to rise again. And, and they're all close together. I want us to read these and look at your Bible if you've got it, so that you, excuse me, that you can see this written right in front of your eyes. Uh, look at Mark 8, verse 31. 
It says, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Then look over at Mark 9, verse 31. It says, Jesus was teaching his disciples, and he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. And then flip over to Mark 10, verses 33 and 34. Jesus says, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. And so three times, Jesus very plainly tells his disciples, I'm going to be put to death and I'm going to rise again. And there's four things we see in each one of those passages. First of all, Jesus is going to die. Secondly, it was an intended death. It was part of God's plan. Jesus knew it. He didn't stray from it. He didn't run from it. He didn't hide from it. Third, this was not a suicide, but this was murder. In each one of those verses, Jesus specifically says who the culprits are. And fourth, he will rise again. The death of Jesus was divinely appointed, and so too was his resurrection. But the one thing we don't see in any of those three verses is why. Why did Jesus die? Well, you've got to keep going in Mark's gospel to see the answer to that. And if you flip the page again, most likely, to verse 45 of chapter 10, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came and he died to give his life as a ransom for many. John Piper says this is the greatest fact of history. It's the most important truth for our lives. We were enslaved in the prison of sin, with no way of getting out. No one could pay the price other than Jesus. And Mark tells us, or Mark gives us the words of Jesus, that I came so that I would give my life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus has given his life to free us from our slavery of sin. And so Mark gives us this example, the example of Jesus, the self-sacrificing king, which should leave us in awe, which should leave us at a place of worship. It should leave us at a place where we are compelled to respond to the call that Jesus has on our life. And this same Jesus, this great self-sacrificing king, calls each one of us to be like him and to make a commitment to him and to his work and to his kingdom and to the gospel that is based, finds its foundation 
on a willingness to sacrifice self. And so if you go back to Mark chapter 8, I want to look at the, the few verses that we're going to really focus on this morning. And we're going to be looking at verse 34, but just understand the context here. Jesus is finding himself in a real pivotal time in his ministry. All of Israel is abuzz about Jesus. People are talking about who he is, what is it that he wants, by what power is he doing the things that he does. And people are becoming divided about Jesus. Crowds are following him, but there are many who are leaving, not really interested in what he has to say. Opposition is growing, and it soon can arise to the point that we know what happens. And Jesus knows what's going to happen, and he knows that it's going to result in his death. And so he calls his closest followers uh, into a quiet place so that he can call for an even greater commitment from them. And it's in this conversation that Jesus is going to have with his disciples where he asks that question that we've all heard before. Who do people say that I am? And it's in this conversation that that Peter gives the response, well, you you are the Son of God. You, You are the Messiah. But that wasn't enough for Jesus. He wasn't content just having a conversation. He wasn't content with just a proper confession. He wanted a commitment. And in the few verses that we're going to look at this morning, what Jesus is really saying is, you know who I am. Now are you willing to commit your life to me? And so we look down at Mark 8, verses 34, and it says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And I want to unpack these verses, but I want to start with a caution. The words of Jesus here are to be as impactful and forceful today as they were back then. Like, it's hard for us to fully comprehend how even his closest disciples heard the words of Jesus when he said, I'm going to die. I'm going to be put to death. I got to suffer. The people that are kind of our enemies, they're actually going to arrest me and they're going to ridicule me. They're going to torture me and they're going to kill me. This absolutely, was kind of what Daryl was talking about earlier, it absolutely shattered their notion and their dreams of what the Messiah was going to be. And then when he calls the crowd around him and explains to them the cost of following him, many of the crowd left. It was too much for them. The cost was too great. 
You see, the words of Jesus here are a death blow to the cheap, easy, feel-good religion that's passed off as Christianity in many places today. Many have fallen for the lie that you just simply profess Christ and then you continue living how you were living before. There doesn't need to be any change. And Jesus here is going to inform us that's not true. In fact, it's utterly false. So let's look at verse 34 and let's see what Jesus has to say. And he says, whoever wants to be my disciple, your Bible may say, whoever would come after me, whoever would follow me, those were, those were words that the disciples had heard before. Many of them had left everything to follow Jesus. Their business, their family, their friends. And here Jesus is calling them to a greater commitment. To the crowd, Jesus is calling them to turn their back on their life, their old way of living, and to put their trust and commitment in him. And to follow him. If anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to be a true disciple, and, and, you know, at that point, and I got to be very careful because we can go on a lot of rabbit trails this morning, but there's, there's a couple of questions that come out of this passage that are like the elephants in a room that, that uh, we have to at least mention. And the first question that some of you might even be wondering now, is there a distinction between being saved and being a disciple? And, and we could go on forever, and I'm happy to talk to people afterwards about this. But let me just share two problems I see with there being a distinction. First of all, I think we do evangelism and outreach and witnessing a disservice when we make a distinction between someone crossing the line of faith and someone being a disciple. Because what we end up doing is weakening the, the, the message of the gospel to the point we're just trying to get people past the line and we're not teaching them anything about what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. That's one the problem I have with the distinction. The other problem is I don't think Jesus ever called for a simple profession of faith. Jesus always said, consider the cost. Count the cost. Here's what is involved in being my follower. He just doesn't seem to call for a mere profession of faith. So that's a little rabbit trail, and and we can talk about that later if you want. But Jesus here is saying, if you want to be a true follower, here's what you need to do. And the first thing he says, you need to deny self. And that brings lots of confusion because people have interpreted this many ways. Often, seeing that what Jesus is asking for is self-denial, that we withhold something from ourselves. If we want to follow Jesus, we don't get involved in this pleasure. If we want to follow Jesus, we don't eat this certain thing on Fridays. We don't drink this certain thing on Wednesdays. Whatever people have made that out to be. That's not what Jesus is talking about. The word deny literally means to totally disown to utterly separate oneself from someone else. It's the same word that Jesus, a little bit later, uses when he's talking to Peter. Remember he says to Peter, three times you're going to deny me. And remember Peter in the courtyard when the the woman asked him, don't you know Jesus? After Jesus has been arrested. Didn't we see you with Jesus? And what did Peter do? 
he denied knowing Jesus. He insisted that he had nothing to do with that man who had been arrested named Jesus. And what Jesus says here is, if you want to be my follower, you must deny self. What does that mean? To deny self. What means that we stop living life only listening to our own voice. It means we stop living life only leaning on our own power. We stop living life only fulfilling our own wishes and desires. It it means refusing that which comes natural to us. Putting ourselves on the throne of our own life. Insisting that we have our own rights. We have the right to make our own decisions. We have the right to make our own plans. We have the right to make our own priorities. You see, truly denying self means that his will becomes our will. His plans become our plans. His priorities, his pursuits, his passions become our passions. When we truly deny self, it means that we give up all rights. It means that that we give all the rights, all control of our life to Jesus as our Lord. And maybe that sounds extreme. Maybe that, that sounds like a lot for Jesus to ask. But I take you back to what we were just talking about. Jesus came to ransom people from a place that we couldn't get out of. And to ransom means to pay a price. He bought us out of slavery. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I'm not my own. And why did Paul say he wasn't his own? He was bought with a price. I'm not my own. I have been bought with a price. So if you want to follow me, You must first deny yourself. And then Jesus says, deny yourself and take up your cross. There's another phrase that we don't really hear very often. Close to it might be, uh, this is the cross I have to carry. And we explain, looking for pity, the the hardships and the troubles that we face. Maybe a, a thankless job or a strained relationship or a disability or sickness. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. The people of Jesus' day, historians say that 30,000 people were executed by the Romans in Jesus' lifetime. They knew what it meant to take up a cross. Cross wasn't a piece of jewelry. It wasn't an ornament in a church. Taking up a cross... was the beginning of a death march for somebody. Taking up a cross brought to mind the shame and humiliation and the suffering and torture and death that went along with a cross. Turn to Galatians 2 verse 20.
And as you turn, I, I want you to see that, that when Jesus says, take up your cross, ultimately what he is saying is that if we want to follow him, we are to die to self. We are, be, we are to be willing to bear the, the wor- world's shaming of us, humiliation, torture, anger, rejection, ridicule, maybe even physical persecution, maybe even death for the sake of Jesus. That's what Jesus meant when he said to take up your cross. Listen to what Galatians 2 verse 20 says. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We can go back to when I was talking about denying yourself, and is that too much to ask? Well, here it is again. Jesus loved me. He died for me. He's bought me. If I accept the gift of forgiveness, it's not me that lives any longer because I've been crucified with Christ. The life I live, I live in Christ. And so what does it look like in our world to take up, taking up our cross? We take up our cross every time that we choose the narrow way over the way of the world. And for you students going back to school, for those of us who are going back to work on Tuesday, we take up our cross when we choose to take a stand for Jesus regardless of the cost, regardless of what it does to our reputation, regardless of people who ridicule us, regardless of the friends that we might lose. We take up our cross when we choose the narrow way versus the way of the world. We take up our cross when we choose to live by and to conduct our business and our family and our finances by biblical ethics regardless of the cost. We take up our cross when we're willing to suffer and face ridicule for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. As I was thinking about this this morning, I couldn't help but think, is it a wonder that we don't really talk about taking up our cross these days? It's so much easier to compromise, to save face, to save friends, to have a cool reputation rather than standing up for Jesus and the things of, the, of, of Scripture, regardless of the cost. And yet Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, deny yourself and die to self. Be willing to bear all that comes from the world because of your association with me. And then thirdly, Jesus says, back in Mark, follow me literally means to take your place behind somebody else and follow their lead. It could say, obey me. Deny yourself. Die to self. Realize that that you've been bought with a price and the life you live, you're living in me. And now obey me. You know, if disobedience is the name of the game before we become a Christian, obedience is is to be the name of the game once we choose to be a follower of Jesus. And yet it's so sad. 
that so many, me included, profess to be a follower of Jesus and yet knowingly and blatantly and intentionally live in disobedience. Doing the things that we know God does not want us to do. Having priorities that we know are not the priorities of Jesus. And so Jesus says, if you want to come after me, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Does it sound appealing? Does it sound harder than all the other things that we've talked about? Jesus would have been a public relation manager's worst nightmare. We read in Scripture so often, Jesus has got this great crowd that he's built up. And then he thinks it's the best time to, just to inform them, consider the cost. Let me tell you the cost of following me. John's gospel tells us it was right in this context. As Jesus spelled out, you want to come after me? Deny yourself. Die to self. Follow me. Obey me. The crowd started to vanish. Why? Why would we want to give this kind of commitment to Jesus? I'm hoping that as we looked at some of those verses in Mark, we'd be compelled to give that kind of response. Paul in Romans gives a similar argument. Remember Romans 1 through 11, he talks about all that God has done through Jesus to give us this great salvation we have. And in verse 12, or 12 verse 1, he says, in view of all of that, in view of everything that God has done for you, in view of the fact that you have this great salvation, Paul doesn't say, in view of all that, just every once in a while, tell people, I'm a Christian, but then live how you want. He says, in view of everything that God has done for you through Jesus, including this great salvation, offer your entire self as a living sacrifice. And at the end of that verse, he says, because it is your reasonable, your logical, your strategic worship. When you consider all that God has done for you through Jesus, it makes no sense to do anything else but to offer your entire self to him. That's the gist of Romans 12, verses 1. So that's our motivation. But Jesus in this passage gives some further motivation as well. And, and, and really quickly, I'm just going to just cover it. He brings up this paradox in verse 35. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And what Jesus is saying is you've got two options. You can save your life now, meaning you can call your own shots. You stay on the throne of your life. Do things as you please. Make your own decisions. Try to gain everything that you can. All the pleasures that you want. But in the end, heaven's got nothing for you. Save your life now. You'll lose it later. But the other option if you lose your life, meaning if, if you commit yourself to Jesus, you deny self, die to self, follow Jesus, 
You lose your life, but you save it. Because when you come to the end of this earth's journey, heaven's door is wide open for you. But it's more than that. Now, even now, the life that God intends us to live, abundant life, life of peace, joy, satisfaction, contentment, all the things that God wants for us can be experienced now. Lose your life and you will save it. And then Jesus gives a very, very penetrating question to consider. Verse 36, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus is saying, what good is it if you gained everything, all the riches, all the pleasures, all the toys, everything this world has to offer? What good is it if you have all of that, but you lose your very soul? And that's a powerful question, but it's also a question that I can't really relate to because I know that I will never gain everything this world has to offer. I'm never going to have all the riches. I'm never going to experience all the pleasure, and none of you are either. It's the second question that really hits us. And if I can paraphrase that question, it's this. What value do you place on your soul? What are those things of this earth that mean so much to you that you'd be willing to give up eternity so that you can practice it, that you can play with it, that you can own it, that you can pursue it? Is it a substance? Is it a hobby? Is it a relationship? What value do you put on your soul? Because you can gain the whole world, but lose your soul. Time is up, and usually I would try to close with a real fancy illustration or something. I just want to reread the passage to you. And uh, praise team, why don't you come on up as I read this. This is a paraphrase of these verses by one of my favorite preachers, Ray Pritchard. I just want you to hear his words and let them speak to you and kind of be a conclusion to what we've talked about this morning, how he paraphrases verses 34 to 36. Now that you know who I am, are you ready to take up your cross and follow me? Before you answer, let me warn you that following me will seem in the eyes of the world as if you are wasting your life. The people of the world will never understand what you are doing. It will seem to them by following me you are throwing your life away. You always have another option. You can try to save your own life by following their own desires. Lots of people do that. They live as if their career was all that mattered. But the people who live only for this life in the end will find they wasted it on things that don't really matter. They try to save it by living for themselves, but in the end they will lose it. They've wasted their lives on trivial pursuits. But if you follow me, though the way will not be easy and you will often be misunderstood, in the end you will save your life. And the people who laugh at you now will not laugh at you then. They will see you were right and they were wrong. After all, what good will it do if you become the richest man in the world or climb to the top of the corporate ladder or rise to the highest salary level in your company or win the applause of the world? What good will all that do if in the end you find out it was all wasted? What good will that shiny new Lexus do for you then? Will you be able to trade it in for another life? No, you won't. But if you want to live that way, go ahead. Millions of people do. In the end, they will be sorry, but by then it will be too late to do anything about it. So what will it be? The way of the cross or the way of the world? 
You've got to invest your life somewhere. What's the best deal you can make? 